Season two is nigh, ladies and gentlemen. Greg Koch here, Chewing the Gristle podcast. It continues unabated. We got some powerful musical friends lined up. We're talking guitars, music, food, aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just chewing the diggity doggone gristle. What can be said about our next guest? A legendary individual had the good fortune of sitting down with an old acquaintance of mine and a legendary soul. From playing with Frank Zappa back in the day, you saw him on the movie Crossroads, you've seen him on stages under his own banner. He was back at David Lee Roth and the age, White Snake, you name it. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Vai. Ladies and gentlemen, such a festive, glorious podcast in your immediate near future. We have the majestic and mighty Steve Vai with us from his beautiful home in Encino. We were just talking about this <laughs> magnificent step. I was there 20 years ago, and for some reason I was under the erroneous impression that it was Paul Lynn's old house. I have no idea. And then you proceeded to extrapolate on all the various celebrity types that live in your immediate vicinity. And I'm thinking, what what are the uh, what are the block parties like? Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, people should be jamming. Yes, of course. Yes, but they're not <laughs> fools. It's a it's a it's a very interesting street. I don't think it was so much like this when we first moved here, like 25 years ago. But uh, a couple of a little trivia about uh, this road. It has the ro- supposedly. The, the road that has the most houses with tennis courts in California, oh whatever that means. <laughs> but, but a lot of celebrities live around here, and especially on, on my street. If you, if from, uh, from the top, it was Tom Petty, um, uh, Ronnie James Dio, Dave Grohl. And they live right, they were right around the corner. I think, I know, I, I know Dave does, Dave moved, um, but Slash lives right, you know, down That's around insane. there. Michael Jackson and the Jackson family have a house right on the next street. And then Graham Nash was my, my is my, well, was, he moved to Hawaii. It was my neighbor, my direct neighbor. As a matter of fact, when we, we had to get a, well, I don't want to get into it, but uh, <laughs> great guy, great family. Uh, this, I think, I think it's the singer for Supertramp right, right up there. Uh, now, it is interesting, Sergio Mendez directly across the street and two houses down, used to live there. His house burnt down in the big earthquake, but he had a wine cellar that was a studio and Harrison Ford built the studio. Because oh. Harrison Ford was a contractor when he first moved out to California. Uh-huh. Yeah. So then if you continue to go down, the Hartmans lived right across Ventura, right there. They were good friends of ours actually. And Shuggy Knight. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ray Romano. Uh, right, right over there. Um, and, 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 and uh, you know, it's that kind of a street. It, this whole area in Sino has kind of uh, changed that way. I think the, uh, well, I don't want to get into too many uh, celebrities, but I don't know how much, you know, if you're talking about Michael Jackson, what? Right. <laughs> Well, your old pad was was awesome. Where I had the good fortune of recording a little bit, the old where the old mothership was at. That was such a. What was so wild about that is is that you know being from Wisconsin here, you know you go out to you're in Hollywood and you're by the belly of the beast, people toing and froing, and all of a sudden you take a ride or whatever, and you go up a hill and you're in the most quiet, glorious neighborhood. Yeah, that was nice about Hollywood. Yeah, yeah that was that that was. Uh, a great little location it was right up in the canyon there. And I found, my wife found this house that had a whole floor that was just vacant. And I, that's where I built that studio. You've seen that studio? Yes. The mothership. Yeah, yep. that, that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you sold that house a while back though, right? Yeah, yeah. We moved out like 25 years ago and uh, I kept it and, and uh, you know, rented it because it had the studio. Right. Uh, and then I, I just, you know, whenever you own stuff, it has a tendency to own you after a while. Hey, you know? I, I just, you know, my whole goal is getting rid of stuff, you know? <laughs> right. I understand. So in, in these 
many years, it seems like so many people from that are um, people have gone out to California and have um, had a great career in music and so on and so forth. They they seem to be like going to Nashville and Austin and all these different places. Have you had any draw to go to any of these other locales, or you're you're staying put? You're you're a lifer out in California now at this point, or any thoughts in that regard? Yeah, well, it's so interesting you ask. We've made, I've been looking at property in uh, Nashville for about two and a half years. Ah. <laughs> Just like, you know, I get it online. Right. I, I, in that Franklin area. And it, it's just, it represents some kind of a different lifestyle that I've pined for. <clears throat> and we went, <clears throat> we went and visited, uh, we went and visited there. I've been there so many times, but I've never really, you know, uh, checked it out. But it's it's really nice, and I we have a lot of friends, and we know a lot of people. We have relatives there, so we were there a couple of months ago, and we checked it out. And we're probably going to go back in uh, two months. Just you know, it's the kind of thing where I mean, it's a big move. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I love California. California is just so great. You know, but Los Angeles, in and of itself, you know, we, I've been here for f- over forty years, and uh, you know, kind of looking for something a little. Sp- more quiet, it's a little yes. silly, you know. <laughs> I understand. Well, tell us a little about it, a little bit, if you would, about when you first ended up going out there. Now it was really kind of through the Frank Zappa thing, correct? So you were at Berkeley, and you sent him some transcriptions of what, like the Black Page or something like that. And yeah. he said, "Wow, this kid can transcribe like a demon." I think I'll put him on the payroll. And then one thing led to another, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, interestingly enough. The reason I moved out to California in the first place, I've been wanting to live here since I was 12. Uh And a very odd, interesting story as to why. Please. (laughs) The Partridge family. Susan Day, perhaps. Well, Susan Day, but actually it was Danny Bonaduce. Because when I was a kid, all I thought about was how cool it would be to be in a rock band, to just play music in a band, play music in a band. That's all I wanted to do. And I saw that kid on the Partridge family and he was 12 and I was 12. And I was like, Hey, <laughs> if he could do it, I could do it. And they're all out in California. That's where I got to go. <laughs> and I was 12, you know, 11, 10, you know, and, um, and that was that was really kind of like the seed. And also when I was very you'll, you'll appreciate this one, Greg. When I was very young, a little boy, uh, I had a little stuffed monkey, you know, a little. And it was my my stuffed monkey. Right. right? And I, I used to I loved it. And I would I would do this thing where I put my my nose, you know, the, have the little hairs of the monkey tickle my nose. And I loved it. I loved it. And I would do this and I make this funny little sound. And I, you know, I was like three years old. Okay, so then I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I would, I would do this monkey. I would just like worship this little monkey, and it would just deteriorate. You know, my mother would have to keep sewing it together <laughs> until finally there was nothing left but a head. And my mother just eventually just said, "Okay, that's it," and she threw the monkey out, right? Because there was nothing but like you know, little pieces of the face and ears. And I'm, you know, you'd loved it to death. Loved it to death. And I said to my mother, I said. Mommy, where's my monkey? And my mother said to me, Stephen, your monkey got on a train and went to California. (laughs) And every time we'd pass a train, because there was train tracks by my house, I'd go, Mommy, is that the train my monkey is on? And my mother would go, yes, there he is. Look, he's going to California. (laughs) So the seed was planted early on. The seed was planted. I wanted to get my monkey back. A land of milk and monkeys awaited you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so the day after my 20th birthday, I moved here. And at first I thought it was the most disgusting place I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, you arrive in the airport, and I'm all excited and everything. And all you see is those big, ow, all you see is those big oil rigs. Right. I'm like, what is this? You know, but then, <laughs> and then what was really funny because I'm so naive, you know, I can't, the kid, you know, I was living. I came out on June like 7th or something. And it was my cousin. I was staying at my cousin's house. Thank God they let me stay there. And he takes me for a, a trip through Hollywood. And there was the, it was pride day. So, so this was the gay parade, 
right? Now, I didn't know, I didn't, I had never seen this many, I didn't know this many gay people existed. Remember, I'm just this, this kid from, you know. Sure. And it was very colorful, very free, very open. I didn't know anything about Pride Day or anything like that. And I'm looking right. around and it's like all drag queens and unbelievable color and, you know, and all this stuff. And I'm thinking, wow, this is California. Yeah, wow, interesting, you know. <laughs> and, I, and then I'm actually... Uh, driving, I was, I was with Gail Zappa. Okay. I was with Gail. We were going to pick up Frank who had just, uh, he had to go every day to give depositions for a lawsuit that he was in with Warner brothers. Right. And we stop at a stop sign on a uh, crossing light at, uh, Santa Monica Boulevard. And this, this beautiful girl's walking across the street in front of the, and I'm, I'm like, oh, wow, well, California, hey, yo, look all the beautiful women and everything, hey, you know? And she's like, yeah, a lot of beautiful women, huh? You, she's a very beautiful girl, right? And I'm like, yeah. She goes, that's not a girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay. I got a lot to learn here in California. But I, I love it. I, I mean, California is just the best. I don't know. Just always loved it, loved it, loved it. Well, you know, you mentioned your, you know, your folks. I'm just curious, you, you know, that generation of, of parents, like my parents, you know, my, uh, my dad just passed away a few years ago. He was 96. Oh, you know, uh, they were of the generation where, I mean, there were no musicians in my family. I mean, the idea, I mean, my mom was a great piano player, but there were, you know, everyone, you know, go to college, get a job, you know, be a you know, middle-class professional, so on and so forth. The idea of being a musician, although I have to say they were supportive, but they were initially horrified. So I'm just curious from your point of view, uh, were your parents supportive or were they like, no, 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 you got to, you got to get a real job. You need to, something to fall back on the usual maxims that you hear from parental units. I, my, I was very fortunate. My parents were extraordinarily supportive. I think with someone like myself, they probably thought if I, if I had an interest, they, they bet, you know, the, the best thing to do would be to support it because they had no idea what else I would do because I, I was virtually non-existent in anything else, you know? Uh, but, but, and also we had five, they had five kids, you know? Right. And, uh, yeah, they were very supportive. Even when I was a kid, I started playing the guitar. At first, I started playing the accordion, like all good Long Island Italian boys, you know, right. <laughs> when I was nine, you know, just so I could play in a Gata de Vida or something, you know. Right. Uh, but um, I hated it. And my father made me practice. And then finally, after like three years, I, I, he allowed me to quit which was fantastic. And then I picked up the guitar and I was playing all day. And if there was anything that was of a concern to him, it was probably that I was just so intensely focused on the guitar. But yeah, very supportive. He brought me to lessons, gave me money for lessons. If the, if the neighbors were yelling because I was too loud, he would yell at the neighbors. <laughs> you know, that's my boy. And and I would like bring guitar necks and stuff to school and just and the the teachers would would have a problem with it and they'd call and my father just said too bad. If my <laughs> son wants to play the guitar and if he wants to bring a guitar neck, he's bringing it. Right. You know? awesome. So that was very nice and uh uh and then when I went decided to go to Berkeley, my father actually sold his life insurance policy to put me through Berkeley because we didn't we weren't rich at all. So um, I was very fortunate because it's quite a risk, you know, for a parent to, uh, I mean, you can make a good living as a musician uh, in various ways. I, I was actually considering being a music teacher in a high school. That's, oh, okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I kind of thought maybe that I would be happy doing that because my music teacher in high school was, uh, he was a game changer for me. I thought, well, if he could do that for me, I, I gonna, I, I wouldn't mind doing it. But I had no expectations of being successful. But I always knew I would. I, I can't, you know, I, I, I can't explain that. It's that's not. Uh, I'm not being. Uh, that, that no, I understand. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I liken it to. I mean, for myself, when I when I say to other folks, when they say, well. 
<clears throat> what should I do as a musician? Or my like my daughters were into theater, and I was like, you know, and unless the love of what you do is so overshadows the specter of what you'll probably encounter, you know, as as yeah. hurdles, don't even bother getting into it because there has to be almost like this a singular almost insanity. <laughs> <laughs> you notice now let me ask you this i i tell uh people that you and this is a a joseph campbell phrase follow oh, yes, your bliss yes follow your bliss but that's but but that's profoundly powerful because you cannot go wrong and there are real i mean the challenges they're, they're opportunities. When you're following your bliss, the challenges turn into opportunities. There's nothing like, could you have been anything else? I mean, perhaps. Probably not. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps but there's no way the way that you play was going to be suppressed by any stretch of the imagination by anybody. It's just too connected. It's too much of a product of like, if an alien came down and saw you, they'd say, no, 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 that's what that guy has to be doing because the, the, he's, too, he's too gifted. It's too natural. It's organic. It's just, there's no, it, when, like when I see you play, I just feel there's, there's, uh, there's, there's no challenge in a sense. You know what I mean? It's not like you had to make a choice in life what you were going to do. Do you ever remember having to make a choice? Well, I just, I just remember as soon as I started playing, I mean, I wanted to play even before I was playing, I was like bewitched by Hendrix, like in third grade. And I just yeah. knew that that's what I wanted to do. And, um, boy, but I, I really kind of paid it myself in a corner cause I didn't very do well, very well in school after that. You know, I mean, my parents used to hide my guitar because my grades were suffering and, you know, I made it through, but it was, um, not quite to expectation, shall we say. So, right. uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I am curious though. I mean, so many of the different things that have come along, you know, for me, is kind of like, oh, I guess I'll do that. But I, it's like the things that have been the most successful, I never would have seen coming like from a mile away. And I'm curious from your point, how, how much of your path, say, since you went from Berkeley out to California, did you have a a notion of I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, or you're just like, I'll do this and see what happens. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, um, I, it's the oddest thing. I didn't think about any of it. I didn't think about the future. I just, I mean, it was too overwhelming to try to figure out what was going to happen. Um, I just stay, I was very present and I just knew that, well, right now today, I have a lot of things that are exciting for me to do. I'm going to be transcribing this song for Frank. I'm going to be learning this riff. I'm going to be, uh, and and that was it. And it was day by day. It was enjoying day by day because to project into the future and say, well, you know, when I become famous or something like that, that was completely off the, off the radar. But there was one, there was one um, kind of instinctual, intuitive realization. And what that was, was, I knew I was very interested in, in this music that was kind of potentially in my head. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain. It was like, I know there's the infinite possibility of the creation of music. It can be anything you want. I know there's something in there that wants to get out that's not, doesn't sound like my heroes, like Hendrix or Led Zeppelin or any of that stuff. Right. And I knew that that was going to come out. Uh, I didn't know how. I didn't know its success. I almost felt like none of that was any of my business. The, the thing that was my business was just doing it, just doing it. And, 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 and when, you just, when you just give yourself the bulletproof intention, I'm just going to do this. That's all. Uh, that every all the elements fall in place. Uh, your radar is fine-tuned to all those cooperative components that will make your desire come to fruition at the perfect time. Yeah, yeah. I can dig it. Yep. You know, I'm curious as to, 
you know, I'm a huge Zappa fan. I just, you know, who isn't? But, you know, you, you find some that, you know, do the deep dive and some people are just have a peripheral understanding of what Frank was all about. But I'm curious as to your development as a musician and as a human and as a business person, how much was that affected by observing Frank and all that kind of stuff? Unquantifiable. There's no way for me to quantify the effect that me being exposed to Frank Zappa had on my move forward MO in my whole career. I knew nothing. And there I am at 20 years old with, with Frank Zappa, who was the <laughs> most independent. And six years, I was 18 when I started working for him. And I was basically was joined at the hip for like five years. 18. Yeah, like five years. And the first two years, I was just transcribing. And then I moved out to California and started working with Frank. Uh, I didn't know how else people did things. Uh -huh. So I just observed Frank and Frank was constantly being creative. He was constantly entertaining himself with his creative intentions. And he used any means necessary to construct his creative ideas. He was never not moving and shaking. You know what I mean? And he, the, the thing that was so amazing about Frank was how he would, um, he was such a free, independent thinker. He, he, he never, he didn't, he, he could sense when somebody was coming at him with, you know, baloney, brainwashing stuff. He was frustrated at the ignorance that people allowed themselves based on conditioned teachings, conditioned thoughts of the world. You understand? Oh, absolutely. He, he knew his own freedom and it, it pissed him off when he saw other people compromising their freedom. Because when you compromise your freedom, you're, you're doing it, you're compromising everybody's. Right. You know? So if Frank wanted to um, do some work on his guitar, he would have no, uh, no problem approaching it as a, like a, just a trendsetter. People wouldn't put a parametric EQ on a guitar or do this to it or do that, you know? And it, it always reminded me of like uh, when uh, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring was first premiered. I forget, I, it's not, I can't remember his name, but there was a very prominent uh, composer in the audience. And after the first uh, few bars, he got up and walked out because... He didn't like the use of the range that Stravinsky wrote that intro melody in, with the bassoon. Because the bassoon has a very warm, you know, sound in this, but it, that, it, it doesn't usually, like, the, the snob elite would never uh, allow a melody to be written on a bassoon that's so prominent in a piece like that. But Stravinsky was like, what, are you putting rules on me? <laughs> and that was Frank. Right. You know, if you, if you tried to limit him, he would actually take actions against the limits that you placed on him. <laughs> like, like, if I, like if I was to say, hey, Frank, um, uh, you, showed me, you told me to play this, and I, I did this. Do you, like, do you like this? How about, you know, how about I do this? You don't do that with Frank. You know, he'll go out of his way to say no and change it again. You know what I mean? It I was understand. like he, he did not compromise his sense of freedom. And that was something that was a powerful lesson for me. Because when I left his band, I just thought, well, okay, now I'm going to go make a record. And it's going to be any record that I want it to be. And, and I'm going to make it because that's what I want to do. You know, and when I made the, when I made the, because that's how you do it. Because that's what Frank did, you know? And when I'd made the gem guitar, that was so innocent, you know? It was like, well, I think, you know, I can do this. Well, you can't do that. Well, yes, I can. Frank would do it. Why would I not be able to do that, you know? <laughs> and, and, well, okay, I'm going to hammer out the back so you can rip, you know, pull up on the butt. Well, you can't do that because why? You know, I did it, you know? Right. And it's cool, 
you know, and there's no rule. So that was the greatest thing that I learned hanging out with Frank is, uh, I mean, besides so many um, production tools and approaches and, you know, just the, the nuts and bolts and the academia of it all. Right. But the, but the, um, but the forthright intention to create, but to, to allow the march of your creative intentions to be of primary importance without any excuses. And what that means is you don't make excuses in your head as to why you can't, and you don't allow anybody else to get in your way. Right. You know, you just navigate around them. Or you, wow. or you, or you pull it in. You incorporate it into what you're doing. Yeah. So that was powerful. You know, I'm, I, of course, I I love doing the deep dive and listening to all of his di- different interviews and so on and so forth. And his intellect was, I mean, he's so spot on about a lot of things that have came to, come to fruition now, just from a you know uh, a social point of view. But I'm also fascinated by just his improvisatory activities. I'm wondering if. You know, they were never the same. You never knew what was going to happen. And it was odd is that although although he um, obviously had an advanced sense of harmony, uh, a lot of times they were one chord vamps of which he would inject all of the exotic seasoning on top of. Uh, I'm wondering how his approach as an improviser and his approach towards that kind of stuff affected you per se. Well, in the beginning... I, I liked the way Frank played. It was very visceral. And I, I've always kind of enjoyed it. There's a certain technique, lack of lack of like polished technique that Frank had, but that it added to the charm of what he did, you know? But um, I was interested in polished technique at the time. I got you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and Frank was just very visceral. And he, he was, a, it's, it's interesting because he was a master of compositional harmony as opposed to traditional conventional harmony. Got you know it. what I'm saying? <laughs> like if you if you get a jazz player, they're gonna you're gonna okay like take like a, a, a genius like uh, Jacob Collier. You know I don't know if you know the, the young kid. Uh-huh. Absolutely brilliant. His ability to harmonize and reharmonize things is just um, his, it's gonna it's historical. I've never seen anything like it. It's so joyful and and lovely but there is within it a particular sensibility that has somewhat of a traditional approach you know like it makes sense that that frank didn't do that usually you know frank's compositional structures uh, uh i should say um harmonizational structures were more based on contemporary composition which was which is dense, you know. Right. There's a density. As a matter of fact, the one time, well, twice, um, I approached Frank about his composing because it was just very rare. No one ever interviewed him on his composing. He was very private about it. All the things that he thought of, but you know, the moment I saw the black page, I was like, what, 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 what? Wait a minute, what, what, what? Hold it, wait, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, and then, you know, you listen to all that incredible orchestral music. It's it's contemporary, you know, his right. ear. So I, we were sitting in an airport and Frank was constantly, when, when he was on tour, he'd have a little briefcase and he'd open it up and he'd have a manuscript paper. So for weeks, I would just like, just kind of look over his shoulder and think, what, are you, what is he doing, you know? And I wanted to ask him about it, you know, but it's just not one of those things you do, you know? And he's writing all these wild chords and everything. So finally, one day we're sitting in an airport and I go and I sat down next to him and I said, <laughs> again, the 20 year old naive puppy. That's what they called me, the puppy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting and I'm like, what you doing? <laughs> you know? And Frank sits and he looks at me and he goes, nothing. <laughs> I'm like, uh, uh, okay, I'll shut up. And he's just ready. And then I guess he, he softened up and he goes, all right, come here. I'll show you what I'm doing. And it was unbelievable. He was building these chords and they were all, he had a list of the top ones the t- on one staff. It was seven note chords with no doublings, eight note chords with no doublings and nine note chords and 10 note chords. So you've got, you know, a voicing. So, you know, 
one, you know, the, 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 this is highly experimental because you've got 10 tonalities without the same note repeating itself and you're making a chord out of it. And he explained it to me. It was so cool the way he explained it and how he how he was stacking things and and how he referred to these chords. He called them densities. Huh. And I was like, oh, man, that's so cool. Yeah, it's a density because it's a you know, 10 note chord, 11 note chord, no doublings. That's like, how do you spread that? And then he goes, so I, I, I write them. And I kind of, you know, know what they sound like. And then when I get home, I, I play them and I use them. They're, they're like cornerstones for composing. Ah. So, so you know, cause if you had one chord, you, you know, you can write a whole bunch of things just based on one chord, but the chords are so obtuse. That's what, and, and that was fascinating. Just so fascinating to me. And um, because I, I loved composing, you know, that was the, the, the even before I before I heard Frank's music or knew who he was, I knew I loved to compose. I knew I loved to play the guitar and I knew I loved uh, rock music and contemporary classical music. And then I, I discovered Frank and I'm like, well, there it is. Right. Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask you how much of his compositional style, which it sounds like a bit of it was. Uh, where was the the ear in creating music versus this is a cool math thing. I wonder how it sounds. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, okay, here's all this. I can do this, Why? but I want, you know, how much what was the cart before the horse? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, contemporary composers can build their work based on all sorts of different uh, formulas that they create in their head. Sometimes they're they're a kind of um, instinctual mathematical sort of equations that have uh, an insight into them of what it's going to sound like, and I think Frank did that a lot because he, he'll he'll he'd, he'd find a chord or something and then he would play a melody. He every all of but but the thing about Frank was his melodies were much less mathematical than other intellectual type composers. You can tell Frank's most enchanting, beautiful melodies, I think, can be found in those very rich band orchestrations, yeah. like the, the Roxy and elsewhere. But, Echidna's uh, Arf is my Echidna's favorite. Arf, I mean, God, that was one of the, the I transcribed that whole double record. Every uh -huh. every note on that on that entire record. That's my favorite. And, I mean, his playing on there is, is Fantastic as Amazing. well. And then yeah. you'll hear something like Gregory Peccary. Right. Oh, God. You know, I mean, and it, and the list goes on and on and on and on because he mixed everything. It, one of my responsibilities as a transcriptionist for him was to go through his entire catalog and make sure there was anything from lead sheets to full scores available for every song because that's what needed to be done back in the day to copyright things. And Frank was by any means necessary type of a guy. And in the moment, in the moment, any means necessary. And uh, he did that with a, compositionally. He would come in, he might hand out music and come back the next day and say, let's hear it. Or you'd have to sight read it right there. And then he'd change it as you go, or he'd add something. And he'd say, okay, we'll play this. And, and he'd, he'd squeak out a melody and he'd say, okay, now play it like this, you know? Or, or now do it in seven. Okay, now do it reggae, you know, now right. add this, you know. So it was constantly until he got it, go, oh, that's it. And then he would keep that for a little while and then change it again. He was constant, he was a forever tinkerer. Got it. You know? <laughs> he would, has that has that affected? I mean, like for instance, if you're if, if one of your tunes is in an odd meter, which you have many, are you are you starting off from that you're hearing it as that or you're like i wonder what it would sound like if i did it like this and kind of write the composition based on the template of of what you want this key signature or i'm sorry time signature to be per se well well the way i do it, it it's it's based on a variety of things sometimes it's just a desire to play something in an odd time signature mm -hmm. in my early years i would compose odd time signatures to get the feel for them so they they weren't very musical, the pieces I was writing, but they were very complex, you know. Uh, but then eventually I, I uh, evolved into 
I believe, you know, using things like odd time signatures and maybe synthetic modes and stuff like that to, to get the, to get a point across, you know, to, because that's what organically kind of came out. And I love soloing in, in odd time signatures because after so many years of doing it, especially like with Frank, um, you develop an inner clock right. for an odd time signature. And that has an effect on the way you phrase everything. So your phrasings uh, work very differently. They work out very differently than if you were playing in 4-4. Four, four. A great example of that in my catalog is a song on my last record. It's called And We Are One. It's just like a seven-minute guitar solo, you know. And it's in uh, 11, I think. Um, but I love it because the, the, it makes the melody sound different than any, any other conventional time signature. Got it. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, you know, I was listening to, I hadn't heard it in a while, I listened to the Attitude song this morning, and <laughs> it's glorious. And it's still it's still mind-bending. But you know what, what, what struck me was so weird is that as you're listening to the great playing and, of course, the arrangement of it is glorious, is that it's not the gain back then was not as high as we all thought it was. You know what I mean? It's 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 just like a nice overdrive. It's not like you know. Yeah. It's just it's weird how the perceptions of gain have changed over time. Oh my God! How does like that change for you as far as how you look at it? Oh yeah, I mean when when Led Zeppelin came out, I mean Jimmy Page it was considered to have a lot of gain, but right, not yeah, really. Exactly. <laughs> right, I know it's crazy. It's like if I had to play his guitar through his rig, I would crash and burn badly. (laughs) (laughs) And in the, when you, you remarked about the attitude song, yeah, that was uh, in the eighties. So, you know, the, the amount of overdrive was, it it was like there was psychological limits on it. Right. You know, and until we heard somebody that said the hell with that, you know, here's a distortion tied to a distortion, tied to a distortion. It's nothing but noise and feedback but it's cool. Right, right, right. Yeah, then we're like, wait a minute, you can put all that gain, you know, and you can see the progression, you know, it's like when Edward hit the scene, that was a lot of, a lot of uh, overdrive and stuff, but not nearly as much as what followed shortly after. exactly. But it's the way that he played with the distortion he had that made it sound so big and so like an orchestra, you know? Yeah. And then there's the phaser. The phasers are, they're killer. I, I was messing around with the phaser not that long ago. It's, it's cool. It's kind of got that univibe thing where they it kind of compresses and squishes the notes and lets them sustain a little bit. It's like, yeah. oh, it's, it's, although it seems kind of archaic at this point in time, they still sound fantastic. <laughs> you know what's interesting? I, I got so fed up with that stuff because once it started going digital, it just, and nothing was like those old analog chorus and phasers and flanges right. and stuff, you know, but, uh, UAD just sent me, uh, my, uh, my buddy, Bill Putnam, uh, sent me these, uh, these stomp boxes. Mm-hmm. UA, UA audio. Yeah, I saw those. Yeah. Yeah. U, UA audio. Sorry. And, uh, right. they, and I was just playing with them this whole week. They are the best, you know, for me. My ear, there it is. It's like, oh, the there, is that, there is, yeah, the gold, you know, that I've been looking for that nobody's been able to, everything's digital and, and harsh and it's got sharp edges and it's like, it's it's missing its back teeth or something, you know? Right, right, right. And, and, but man, these uh, UA pedals are just to die for. Cool, I'll have to check those out. Yeah, you got to check them out. I've seen them on the inner Google. The inner Google. Speaking of the inner Google, I was also watching your uh, video you posted about eight months ago or so of Candle Power, where you're playing clean, cool, bendy stuff. The arrangement is mind blowing. Tell us a little bit about what all went into that. Well, first of all, it was it was my it was inspired by Greg Koch. 
Oh, for God's <laughs> Seriously, no, that it's right up your alley. And um, it's not something I do often, and it's not something I'm very good at, you know? And it was something, but it was something I wanted to experiment. See, this is what I, I thrive on, is <clears throat> coming up with an idea where I, I maybe even put limitations on myself. Because you, as you know, if you put certain limitations and you push, push yourself in those limitations, you're going to come out with things that you would never have done. Right. So um, there was a couple of things that always kind of uh, scared me a bit. Like, like if I had to pick up one of your guitars and a telly, the way you do it, there's like no way. This this old crusty son of a gun. Oh my God. No, thank you. (laughs) And I, I love, I love getting your Instagrams and just, they're also great because of the way that, I mean, that is a, a gift, you know, to, to, play those guitars that way and it was it was something I, I spent precious little time on I never really approached it I was always more of the you know high gain overdrive sure. delay that's what I like you know um and it covers up a lot of mistakes <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't hear any mistakes in your playing well you know uh, I'm just saying that because that's what people say <laughs> but, uh, yeah so now I don't I you know when you don't defend yourself you're free well, <laughs> <laughs> well as I was listening to that performance I was like you know it was it was flawless I mean it sounded great the tone was great the arrangement was super cool and I thought to myself I mean what does it take for you at this point to get a, a selection like that up to f- performance um, caliber. I mean, what, what kind of practice regimen, how much of something like that is improvised versus it's a set arrangement, that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, the, the, the guiding factor in any of it is the enthusiasm in the knowing that it's what I want to do. So I would never, I, I, did, I did not have to employ discipline. Uh-huh. It was passion because I saw, I knew that I wanted to do a song that had a clean style. I love love Strat style guitars. Always loved them. I I, I like that tone. I like that clean tone. I'm not. I don't do it often, you know. But uh, and I wanted to do something with my fingers because I I never did. I don't have I don't have any songs in my entire catalog where I played with my fingers, and um, I mean you know exclusively. Sure. And I said, let me get rid of the whammy bar. And Mr. Wiggles, as I like to call it. Mr. Wiggles, because, you know, the whammy bar, it's like it's it's embedded in every, every other note I play, you know. Sure. So I got, I got rid of all that stuff. And I found this riff on my infinity shelf, you know, which is the the the, the plethora of little riffs that you record and you just put aside. Sure. And it was just that simple... Uh, you know, it was just that simple. Yeah. So that's it. That's all I had. And I thought, what's well, a that's a cute little riff. And right. that kind of falls in the parameters of this idea that I had. But I had that, you know, that's it's not enough for me to just put up those kind of parameters. You're going to play with this. Gonna, I, I wanted to come up with a riff or something that was just different than anything I've done or anything I've heard. Because that's the funnest thing for me in the world is to discover something new for myself. And if it's new for others, that's great. Um, and I, in, in my mind's eye, I had this idea of these bends where you, you know, you bend and you use various fingers in various directions with pull-offs and, and sure. moving along the neck. So I saw it first. And then when I started to try to do it, I was like, holy, yeah, this is hard. This is really, really hard. And I spent a lot of time. So you asked how long a song like that, there's no improvising. There's no improvising. I took it piece by piece because it was so hard and because it was a new thing for me. I would take it piece by piece and, and you know, write it and practice it and play it until it felt really good and natural. And then I maybe go to another section and then I go back and I say, OK, well, that's easy now. Let me see if I can. And I always ask myself, OK, what are you going to do here that you've never done? So 
that's just the that's just fun, you know. Yeah. I don't care what I don't care how it transpires. The 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 goal, the the the, the visceral movement towards it is the excitement for it, you know. Right, right, right. So when I started doing that uh, the technique with all the bends, I I had at that time I had not heard it before, but um, I realized that in order to do it, it, I had to move the the tips of my fingers to to, to bend in the various directions. Cause if you do conventional bending, you, you, when you got two or three strings going in, you know, different directions, you, yeah. uh, you, you can't, you have to just bend the tip. So you have to shift the joint. Right. <laughs> so that's why I call the joint shifting, you know? <laughs> and, and the thing is, Greg, when I, when I did it, I, I, I thought, well, I'm sure that's, it's probably not unique. I mean, somebody, must have, I mean, I had heard many country players doing something very similar, right, but I right. never really heard the, the various directions until I released this and somebody said, oh, no, um, uh, Donahue. Oh, Jerry Donahue. Yeah, Jerry yeah, yeah. Donahue was doing that. So I was like, oh, so I started researching. I'm like, oh, my God, I go. I don't even want to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like that guy. Yeah. And you, you know, like guys like you and him are just like, you know, so I. That that I, I was like kind of knocking. I was knocking on your door a little bit. I was kind of like, you know, Greg lives on that street. I wonder if they'll allow me to walk on the sidewalk. <laughs> you know? well, I'll tell you what, it was mind blowing. I don't recall doing any of that stuff. But uh, I, I will say to you, I, I found a video. I, I I saw it years ago in the in the. Uh, in the days of MySpace, someone had posted this and then it disappeared. But there's a Roy Buchanan interview um, that he did shortly before he died, and it's called Telly Talk. But just go online. They finally, like, recently posted it to YouTube, and it's just him. I don't think it's his telly. It's a borrowed telly, and he's just sitting there. He's going in through a reverb tank and, like, a basement, and he does some stuff. <laughs> Just trust me. Check oh it out, and and you will. I and you will. will enjoy. I will because uh, he was one of those players. He was the first telly player. I was a uh, fourteen, thirteen or fourteen, and I was going to lessons with this guy Joe Bell, and he was like a jazz player on a strat, and he was teaching. I was learning jazz from him, and um, he hipped me to Roy. Yeah. And man, I love, I listened to his stuff constantly for a while back then. So good. I'm going to check that out. What was it? What was it again? It's called, just called Telly Talk. It's like from uh, 88, uh, right shortly before he died. And it's just, it's, uh, this guy posted it finally. As I said, it wasn't available because I think the guy was holding out thinking he was going to, you know, make all this money and, and, and he just never marketed it. So finally they just put it on YouTube and you can see, and there's a lot of weird like starts and stops to the interview. But at one point, he's just playing. He does a little flamenco thing, but he does some cool bends. Um, yeah. It's it's cool. It's definitely worth checking out because they're unusual. You know what I mean? They're kind of they're the like, wait a minute. I think I'll be taking that. Thanks, Roy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Guthrie uh, Guthrie Govan does a lot of that cool stuff too. Yes, indeed. One well, the last thing I'll say about candle power and the joint shifting is. Um, I'm I'm scratching the surface. I'm I'm really just scratching the surface. One of the things that I was I'm hoping for something like that is that young players who just are twinkles in my eye, our eye right now, who we know already I see so many generations of players that have more chops than I could I dreamed possible. Uh I'm I did that because I believe there's a very interesting and and unique performance technique that could be taken to another level. Right, right. What many levels, you know, that I just I'm too old and not enough time, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to do. So I, I kind of, uh, with something like that, I just hope to open a little bit of a Pandora's box, you know, for younger players who see the potential in, in it and take it far, far beyond what I'm doing. And I could, you, I'm sure you could like imagine in your mind sure. what that would be, you right. know, the way that or the bending of notes and the, the, as long as it's, I'll just leave, give you one clue to anybody that's interested enough to do something like that. It has to be musical. Right. Exactly. It's not musical. It just doesn't fly. This is true. I was going to ask you about your. You came out with that theory book, and I'm, I I haven't had a chance to kind of sniff it out on what you what it's all about. Would you care to tell us a little bit about the thought behind that and what it's all about? 
Yeah, it's it's a ideology, and um, I've always I've always enjoyed teaching and kind of sharing uh, any of the information that I know, because when I was young, um, music theory just came simple and natural to me. It was like the only thing. <laughs> Nothing else did, you know. I mean, I was like completely, um, you know, average, if not below average, in so many things, but. Music theory worked for me, and I it, I saw the great tool that it was, and how it's aided me through my life. I'm never I never uh, say that it's a must to know music theory, because effective music doesn't come from that. It it, it comes from when a person reaches into deeply into their imagination without any excuses. The, the, everything can is there. But knowing and understanding the language of music can help. Right. And it, it can behoove you. And I always thought one day I'm going to write a book for guitar players be, because most guitar players are completely intimidated by sure. music theory. They almost they almost believe I've met people that believe that if they knew music theory it would destroy their playing. Yeah, this is a lie. Yeah, that, that's you know? horse, horse hockey. <laughs> yeah, it's not true unless you make it true, you know? Right. But um, so I, I did, uh, I originally did Vidiology as a little PDF for one of my Vi Academy camps for the, for the students. Right. And I, but I, it really needed some cleanup and I just really loved doing it. You see, if you love something, if you love what you're doing, if you're enjoying the process, it's worth it. Right. It's worth it. Nothing else is going to be worth it. And people think, I can get in trouble for saying this, but people think they have to do things that they don't want to do. You don't. Right. <laughs> you know, somebody else will do what you don't want to do and it'll be something they want to do perhaps. Right. And do it much better. So with the book, I wanted to do it. And I wanted to do, I, I wrote the entire thing, every diagram, every, everything, you know, and uh, I loved it. And I think it is very helpful. I think it could be very helpful for guitar players that might feel a little intimidated about having to learn music theory, that maybe uh, don't feel like they can grasp it or feel that it's, uh, it's unnecessary. There's, there's, it's kind of like each, each part of it has basic theory and then advanced thoughts on the basics. And there's even more above that I can go, but it, you know, that book pretty much, I think covers the basics. I think, and, and it's the thing that I think is very, um, one of the good things about it is it's the way it's written in linear order. It's easy to understand. I mean, do you ever like, go to learn something and the, the, the manual or whatever is using terminology that they expect you to know. Right. Yeah. And you don't, right. but you don't want to say that you don't know it because uh, you'll figure it out, but you never figure it out. And as a result, everything goes to hell in a handbag. You have no retention for anything that you've learned and no interest. Right. So this, this, I know that because that's me. You know, when I read something I don't understand, I get pissed off that they think I should understand it before they teach it. And then they teach things based on the stuff that they introduce that I don't know. It's all sorts of wrong. So I so this book is built so that it respects the fact that you know nothing. Excellent. And here, here's a little bit. Okay, now this will take you and and there's no end. I mean, it gets it gets really deep if you're interested. That's excellent. You know, I, I was I've talked about this with a few other folks during these uh, these chats, and it, it seems I, I find that you know I never get bored. There's always something new to get into. The the access of information that we have now with the internet as a musician or really across the board and any kind of pursuit is is you know it's the golden the golden era. But it's amazing to me. I mean, 
I think that there's really no reason to suck at this point. If, if someone, <laughs> someone's got everything at their disposal. I mean, they have, it's like the endless, remember, remember back in the day we'd read about someone in guitar player magazine and, and they would start mentioning their, their influences, you know, and it'd be like, well, I'm never going to find records by these guys, you know, maybe, exactly, you know, yeah. And now it's like you can go, someone can mention whoever, and you can immediately go on YouTube or whatever, and either there's footage of the actual person playing it, or someone has uploaded at least audio of all this different stuff. So there's there's no mystery to it per se, but I don't I don't think that that's a bad thing. There's other people saying, yeah, but it's not, they're not, people, young kids aren't assimilating the information the same way, and it's not, and I'm like, well, maybe that's a good thing. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts about this? Uh, the fact that it's the gold, I find it's the golden era. I mean, you can, you know, it's the sky's the limit, really. For, yeah, for you're us. not going to turn back in the day, you're not going to turn on your TV and find Teletalk. Right, exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that there's various tools that have evolved since the beginning, you know, and and we've seen that happen, you know, from from music manuscript to records to cassettes to digital to, you know, there's even, even music theory has evolved, mm -hmm. you know, from, from before jazz, you know, the analyzation of classical music to jazz to, and then you've got guys these days, like uh, I believe Jacob Collier, who are actually raising the bar on music theory, you know, right. and the way that he's, the things he's doing and all. So, and, and the access point to acquire information to inspire you is vast now. It's right. vast. But here's, here's the kicker. It's limited to your imagination. It, it's limited to, and, and, the, and the imagination is unlimited. It's limited to your belief in your limitations. So it almost doesn't matter what's out there. It's only going to be absorbed in a similar way and, and, and internally um, uh, uh, implemented based on the creative insight of the person that's taking it in. So the effectiveness of music, the effectiveness of when I see you play, when the effectiveness is when I'm listening to, when we're listening to Frank or um, Stravinsky or, or, or something that might stimulate somebody that doesn't stimulate me. The real true, uh, uh, intent of the music is how it affects you, how it affects you first and how it affects the listeners. Right. Right. So I don't think that's changed. Even when, uh, all's there was that was available was a piano or something. You know, right. it's based it's based on the creative impulses of the individual. And it almost doesn't like you could give me an entire encyclopedia of words. It's not going to make me a better poet in a sense. True. I understand. Yeah. You know? So I think it's advantageous and you can find like incredible and the best way to improve is by being inspired by people who are doing things far above your capacity. Right. You know, I, I seek that stuff out all the time uh, to be inspired by. But ultimately, the headroom is based on your passion for your creative process because that's what flows into what you do. Your, your own passion, your own bliss, as you're creating, that flows into what you do and what you create carries that regardless of the tools that you, uh, you, you've used to, to, to put it in there. Does that make sense? Sure. Absolutely. I get it. Yep. That's just a thought. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Hey, <laughs> well, before, before we end, I'm just curious as to what you've been doing during COVID. I mean, you're, are you recording at, ho at home? I mean, when are you going to get out and about again? What are your thoughts about this whole crazy time? Well, I've had, a, you know, I mean, I know that that's, a lot of challenges for a lot of people, but um, I've rolled with the punches as best I could. And they always seem to turn out things that are better than I expected. So I've really had a good period this last year. You know, sure, there was challenges, but they just 
drove me to do other things. So right. for me, I really liked just being home yeah, and being secluded, not having to go out, not having to go on trips, not having to go on tour, not doing anything. Uh, I had some things I had to push. I mean, I was I had like uh, a, a four week recording schedule in Europe to record all my orchestra music. I got about four hours of that. I had to postpone that twice. And now we're doing it in 22 out of tours. I had a cancer, you know, all this stuff. And surprisingly, I've got done less than I thought I'd get done because I don't know. I've just taken a real lax. I've been, I've practiced presence a lot, you know, yeah, yeah. but I've uh, done a, a lot of, you know, other creative things. Um, I did them. I started two different live streams for a little while. One was called uh, Alien Guitar Secrets and another one was called Under It All. And I like those. I might do more of those. I've recorded a lot of stuff. I am started working on an, a solo acoustic vocal record. It was very oh, different. Oh, cool. Very, very different. Nothing virtuosic because there's a certain kind of music that I always had in the back of my mind that had a particular kind of harmonic DNA in it. And um, I brought all these songs together. Very bare and open, me singing and playing. So it's very different, but I, I like it. And it was something I always wanted to do. And uh, I just finished recording the song. Oddly enough, I used this period of downtime to get some things, some uh, physical things cleaned up. I, I had surgery on my finger ah. and uh, I had like a trigger finger. Now it's, oh, great. It. Now it's great, but it's a big, big, oh, it's wild. They put a gas, it's a long story. And I had my shoulder, I had cuff surgery done. So I oh, just man. got out of the brace. So there was a while there where I couldn't do anything, you know, I, I was in the brace and I wrote this song with one hand and um, I'm working on a video, little video performance for that. I'm going to release and uh, uh, I've been working on Generation X live record and DVD that hopefully will come out this year. And then I've been chipping away at a new um, studio record that I uh, probably will get together at some point and go on tour and some other surprises. But I've really had a good, good lockdown. Yeah. I, I, and you know I what? I don't feel guilty about saying that because you, anybody, any, I challenge anybody to change their perspective on all the miserable shit that they believe is going on around them and start looking at those things in the lot in your life that you can find appreciation in, in this moment. And right. it will change your perspective of the whole lockdown. Well, I, I agree. I mean, I, I wrote a blues tune the other day. It's got one line. It just says, I woke up this morning and that's good enough. That's great. <laughs> <Very good. laughs> oh man, go. So All what right, are you well, doing? Wait a minute. Such a, a pleasure hanging with you. Wait a, minute, wait a minute. I want to hear about you. You got any time? Sure, absolutely. What are you doing? Well, uh, I do four live streams a week here. Uh, wow. I do uh, two for Wildwood Guitars where they, they send me cool guitars. And I just play and yuck it up and you know respond to people messaging on the, on the restream chat room. And, um, and then I do two for Fishman, and I do this with my son. My son, the drummer, lives in the house with us. And then every other weekend, our B3 player comes down uh, from Minneapolis, and that's this weekend. So then we do a live stream with him, and we're just finishing up on the record, our second record with that lineup. So I'm going to get that out in about a month. And then we've got, we're recording again this next weekend when he comes down, so we'll have another record done for later on this year. And then, you know, things have been going great with the, the touring was going great with the band right before COVID hit. But by the same token, I mean, I've got no complaints. I, I, I have plenty of stuff I do here from the house and, and people have been very generous with the live streams and, you know, the Wildwood thing has been great. People are still, you know, they're buying guitars more than ever. Um, you know, I yeah, got another I noticed that too. I got another signature guitar coming out with with Reverend. I nice. These, oh, that's beautiful. These new uh, Fishman Fluent. I, I've been designing pickups with them. So these are new wow. P90s. They're hum canceling, but they actually sound magnificent. They have two voices, and the and the out of phase thing sounds diabolical. A real, now, are they uh, single coil? Well, and they're stacked. Well, they're not stacked. I mean, it's I don't know if you know about that Fluence technology. So instead of 
instead of having wound pickups, they're actually really thin uh, circuit boards with the coil printed on them, and then they stack oh. those around the magnets. So they're still magnets, it's still function, but that is like a a blank canvas. It's not very loud in and of itself, so it needs a preamp in order to make it sound wow. accordingly. And, and so, and, and that, is this so the first time? Well, we did we did strap pickups, but, but my tele pickups have been have been going like gangbusters for them. That, those were on the the first iteration, uh, and there are there's two voices. Uh, one's like a black guard telly, the other one's like a white guard telly. And again, you don't lose any volume when you turn down the volume. Uh, you don't lose any tone when you turn down oh, the volume. That's nice. You can do all the telly wah stuff. And it sounds like it's supposed to sound. But see, what was really cool about it, when we were voicing the stuff, we kind of had a shuttle guitar so we could pop out our pickups and put in the old pickups, yeah. hear them, and then immediately that's go the back to the other ones. And then adjust them real time. They had they had software where they could go, how's this? So by the time we got done voicing all the pickups, I actually preferred ours versus the other ones. So, and people love them. They're buying them up a storm. So that's all good. So I was really excited about the P90s. I love P90s, but they're noisy as hell when you have gain on them. So um, that's been solved. So that's fun. So that's coming out next month. And I got the the Cock Amplifiers, which is not my company, but it's the same name. And it's a, a Dutch company. And is that, uh, is that a coincidence? Well, uh, let's put it this way. I, I'd known about that company for years, and and uh, the wife of Dolph Cock was a fan of the band. She had bought some CDs, and they came over to me a couple years ago when I wasn't doing as much stuff for Fender anymore. I was doing, I was at the Fishman booth at Music mm -hmm. Mesa, and uh, Dolph Cock came over. You know, we're big fans of yours. I said, you know, I tried one of your amps when I was in Italy. It sounded magnificent. So then I used one of their amps, and I really I loved it. I mean, it was... It's killer. I mean, it's it's um, they're EL thirty fours, but his clean sounds great. Doesn't get spiky on the top. It doesn't fart off and nice. then fart out in the low end. It's just nice and you can get the bell like thing without the razor blades. And again, you can kind of gain it up and it doesn't fart out. So I dug it, and the lead sound was killer. So I gave him a recipe for an amp. I wanted harmonic vibrato, like sounds like a Univibe from like the old uh, brown face Fender era, and I wanted like a three control reverb so I could get real vivid like surf reverb if I wanted. And so they made the amp, and it's magnificent. So then we made that one. We've made now we're getting these smaller ones out, and so on and so forth. So between all of these things, it's um, it's all good. I mean, I, I really, I really can't complain. Yeah, you've been keeping busy and and feeding the beast. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, um, still got those four kids, <laughs> although they're getting older now. <laughs> oh damn! Well, it sounds like you're doing great, brother. And these these podcasts you're doing are fantastic. Oh, I'm having I'm having a great time. It's making, thanks so much for doing it. It was a oh, pleasure. Pleasure hanging. So uh, when we get out to California again, I'd love you to come out and see the band. We've been coming out there. It's been going great. So when the pestilence clears, we'll have to convene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Give me just drop me an email. I'd love to see you. You got it, my friend. Well, thanks so much. Say hello to the gang for us and take it easy. Thanks again for your time. You too, brother. Have Cheers. a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Or you'll hear me soon. <laughs> <laughs>